0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in German Studies, part of the New Books Network. I'm Craig Servillo, host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Dr. Douglas O'Regan about his excellent new book, Taking Nazi Technology Allied Exploitation of German Science After the Second World War. Doug, hello, and welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. It's a, it's a pleasure to have you. And, Doug, as a, as a matter of introduction, um, I always ask our authors to
2: uh, give us a little
1: bit of background information on themselves.
2: Sure, I I started off as a history major and a physics major at the University of Virginia and wasn't really sure how I was gonna combine those two things. And some people suggested history of science. I wasn't sure if that was for me and eventually decided it was. Applied to a number of places. The only one I got into was my first choice, which was Berkeley. So I got a PhD in history there. And uh, along the way was uh, reading a lot of books related to technology transfer. That was really my overall interest uh, as, a, as a sort of specialty. And then eventually, uh, as I guess we'll discuss in a minute, came across this topic. Hmm. Yeah.
1: Um, and so um, are you a university faculty now, or are you doing
2: something outside of academia? No, no. I, I'm, I'm outside of academia now in the, in the broad world of economic consulting, which was not something I'd imagined ahead of time. But uh, there's very few academic jobs anymore, and i ended up being lucky enough to find something interesting that allowed me to use the history research skills that I developed, while also uh, using the other side of the brain, doing doing some coding and data analysis, and that sort of thing. Hmm.
1: Um, so let's let's turn to your specific book. Um, uh, what so what's the origin story of this book? How did you come? You you mentioned you're interested in technology and you have a background in physics, but uh, why specifically this this area um of history then sort of after world war ii um and and why uh nazi technology
2: yeah so there's there's sort of the thematic answer and the real answer the real answer is that i found a really interesting book on the topic and i was really curious about uh what what hadn't been answered about that which if you look at the the books on this you mostly see people talking about project paperclip uh Wernher von braun has a really famous case study which is an important but kind, kind of small-time program to bring German scientists to the United States. It's been written about by a lot of journalists, each of whom sort of rediscovers it as this big new expose. More recently, one or two historians have done a good job. But Brian Krim, as I think we discussed before this, uh, wrote a good book on Project Paperclip. But I was interested in not just the American side, also what was going on around the world, because it wasn't just America involved in this. There were British... People interested in taking German science French uh, and, and the Soviet Union as well of course was interested in German science technology and if you look at the research on the Soviet atomic bomb for example there's a huge debate going back for a long time about exactly how important was the German science program taken into the Soviet Union in developing the Soviet atomic program So I wanted to compare what was different and what was similar across all of these programs to take German science and technology, considering they were all ally. They all had a lot of the same advantages of being able to be inside Germany with the backing of an army. Germans weren't really much of a position to resist anything the allies wanted, Um, but all these countries had very different circumstances going in, uh, coming out of the war. When the Soviet Union had been totally crushed economically, huge, huge population loss. Uh, Also, we're still undergoing, uh, obviously, all of the restructuring of the early Stalinist era. Um, You know, America came out of it an economic powerhouse, didn't necessarily have the same needs as Britain, who were now in huge debt, or France, who had been crushed in a different way. So I wanted to see what was different or similar across these different countries.
1: Yeah, I think that's going to be one of the exciting things for our listeners about this book. Uh, you know, I'm sure many of them have read some of the other books that you mentioned and are familiar with sort of the American um, exploitation of German technology, but I think they're going to be less familiar with the other parts of your book, um, which which were really interesting. Um, and we're gonna we're gonna take each country one by one. Your your book is sort of nicely organized, <laughs> um, so it's a it's a good way to do this. Um, but we'll start with the with the first chapter about the Americans. Um, so. Let's talk about the overall program, American program of exploitation of German technology. And you you sort of hinted at it in your last answer, but just tell us a little bit how your approach on this topic is a little different than than other books that have been written.
2: Yeah, so a lot of the books that have been written about this are approaching it from a question that's important but not really a key part of my book, which is sort of the ethics and morals of how do should, should people use. Scientists and science that was developed during the Nazi era, should former Nazi party members be allowed into other countries uh, to be involved in their scientific programs, given obviously the, the heinous moral backing of the, the Nazi state? That's, that's an interesting question. Uh, you know, should Werner von Braun have been brought in along with this team? Uh, should, should Nazis have been allowed in other places? And to be clear, there were a lot of people who were brought in through these programs who were Nazi party members. Some of them very clearly were involved in research facilities where they would have benefited from witnessed, um, you know, slave, slave slavery, people being taken into slavery, being abused, being tortured to death, as part of the technology development, as part of the you know chemical industry, as part of developing the B two missile. So there are some real moral questions here, but those were not the primary thing that I was looking at. I was really interested uh, in what worked and what didn't when it came to taking technology and the when you come to that, you start looking at what technologies did America tried to get and what technologies worked or didn't work in terms of bringing them to America. Uh, and this was a much, much broader set of programs than the V2 missiles that you hear the most about or the jet engines that you sometimes hear about. Virtually every industry in America sent teams over to Germany to try to take German science and technology, and there was widespread enthusiasm for this. when. The Commerce Department eventually took over this. The, there were a number of different programs involved here. I'm just going to be, take a shortcut and say when the Commerce Department sent out a call to industry to see who was interested in sending their people over to Germany to find out about German technology, they got answers from all kinds of places, from chemicals, from manufacturing of various types, from forestry, agriculture. Uh, really any industry you can think of, wanted to know what was going on in German technology because it was known as the best in the world. It had this reputation as being really, really strong scientifically, technologically. And so a huge amount of people went over there. But when And so previously, when you look at books like John Gimbel, a historian who wrote a great book about this topic, the American side of this, he looks at all these things that, that people sent over, how happy a couple people were about the things they found, sort of extrapolates from there these huge, huge gains that America got. But when I started looking more closely at the records of the people who went over there, the records of the different institutions who tried to send people over there, what you saw far more often was people really excited to go to Germany, getting there on the ground, looking through the documents, talking to the people, and sending back reports more like, well, this, this is neat. You know, I'm sure in other fields, they're going to get all kinds of value from this. In my field, what America was doing was actually as good as what Germany's doing or better. And you see that over and over and over again, people realizing that actually Germany's huge reputation for being so amazing had kind of been eclipsed by American advances before the war and during the war. And now America was really the industrial leaders in the world, not just in terms of they still existed after as compared to the German industry, which had been pounded in the ground by bombs, but also technologically, American industry really was great. And so this I argue really shifts American thinking in the post-war years, into being an exporter of technology, exporter of technological ideas and way of doing things, and using that as a diplomatic lever to get other countries to support America by offering to help them with their technology.
1: Why do you think um, this, as fact, has been largely ignored? As you mentioned, you know, it, it's when we talk about the taking of German technology, we often, you know, we hype it up. Um, we got all this stuff, the jet engine, the V2 rocket. W- why do you think scholarship has been slow to, to really adopt your point of view that, you know, maybe, okay, we didn't get so much out of it?
2: I mean, it's a sexier story if you're getting all these big, huge, secret forbidden technologies from the Nazis and they're the driving force behind American industry. And we can attribute all of our NASA success to the Germans. I mean, that, that's a fun story. I I think if you look in the historical scholarship, that's not the dominant story among specialists, but it is a very gripping story. And in some ways it makes the story of the moral side of it even worse. You brought all these Nazi folks over, to be clear, not all these German scientists were meaningfully Nazis, but some were. And some people who were brought over were involved in real atrocities. It actually makes the moral case stronger and worse that we brought them over for little gain than it does if it's this deal with the devil. But I think a deal with the devil is an easier story to sell.
1: Um, so let's talk a little bit now about the British. How, how, did, how were the British not only different, um, how were their goals different, their, what they were trying to appropriate different, but also how did they both work with us and sort of maybe against us at the same time in, in trying to um, appropriate some of these technologies for themselves?
2: Uh, the the british are a a funny case in that they they're a really clear example of what you see throughout it which is everybody really worried that all the others are going to get the jump and say we need to get the jump first and so the british uh you start seeing a number of people in different agencies within the british bureaucracy saying if we don't jump on german technology the americans are going to get there first and maybe we should do this without even talking to the americans so we can get as much as we can Uh, at the same time you get um Americans saying the same thing about the British. The British are getting this big lead. The the British are afraid of being outpaced to some degree, but they also have different needs and different opportunities than the Americans. For one thing, they are much closer to Germany, so it was a lot cheaper and easier to send people over there. So the British ended up sending a lot more investigators into Germany than did the Americans, just in terms of numbers. But they also came out of the war with a huge national debt they were really worried about. They came out of the war really concerned about developing export industries so they could pay down that debt. They they didn't have enough US dollars to pay back this huge debt in US dollars. That drove it. There's also just decades and decades of history before the war of British elites being really worried about German ingenuity and technology and these wily Huns, as they called them, taking what they saw as British inventions and making a fortune out of them and the Brits being left behind. And you see this worry about the decline of britain and the decline of british science that's really a cultural thing in britain uh, leading into the war playing into this too and so the british sent a lot of people over to germany and they were worried about two real objectives one is these export industries two is staying on the good side of the americans because they saw in the post-war years they were going to need america if they were going to have a place in the world and stay safe from new threats such as the soviet union and balancing those two didn't really work. They were they wanted the German industry desperately in a lot of ways, but as they sent their investigators over, they kept getting reports back that they weren't able to get what they really needed. They could get any documents they wanted, but what they couldn't capture was all of the human elements of the technology that it takes to translate textbook knowledge, written down knowledge into actually being able to do a thing. It was the difference between being able to have a a user's manual for your dry cleaner or watching a YouTube video for how to repair your dry cleaner. The YouTube video is gonna capture a lot of things that the written version can't. And if you have somebody who can come show you in person, that's even better. And so what they called the know-how element was what they weren't capturing in these written forms. And that really led them to a conflict of, do we share with the Americans in terms of making a bunch of documents, which we can make copies of and give to the Americans for diplomatic gains, or do we really focus on sending British investigators over to develop the know-how. They never had a definitive answer to that. They they opted more towards sending a lot of British f- folks into Germany to capture the know-how, but this was this was a problem they faced throughout their program. Um, just in a general sense, how
1: successful was their overall program?
2: It's, it's really, really hard to say. Um, they, they certainly sent a lot more people over, and I suspect that had a lot to do with capturing a lot of... So, there's sort of two ways of framing it. One is, did they get the German technologies, pick them up and move them into Britain to create export industries? Probably in a few areas, probably to that extent, a little bit better than the Americans, if only because they were not necessarily already in an advanced position that the Americans were. There was a little more catching up to do in some areas. At the same time, there's also the question of value in the sense of um, developing ties with Germany in the post-war years. What I, what I really argue America got out of this was that they knew what the german companies were capable of doing and were able to work with them in multinational industrial collaborations in the post-war years to everybody's benefit i think the british got that to an even greater extent than the americans did so i think they gained a lot in that sense as well more so even than sort of the picking up german science and, and exploiting it in that sense
1: um, and so now we have a different case um the french um, who had an entirely uh, different set of concerns than the, the sort of the Anglo-American alliance. Um, how is the French approach different from the other two? And, and sort of how is their program or their desire to expropriate technology um, more sort of couched, or not couched, but uh, connected to diplomatic concerns?
2: Yeah, I mean, to understand the French case, you really have to understand that France was defeated early in the war was occupied by germany and there were resistance efforts to the germans but they were much smaller than in the post-war years france would really like to have been true and so you had a real struggle within france once france was become once french was free and even as sort of the free france movement who technically collaborated with the the other countries during the war no, not just technically collaborated, but collaborated, but were still sort of the junior partner in the big alliance during the war. Who was going to lead France after the war and how could France reestablish itself as an honorable, prestigious power? And science was one of the big answers to that. Uh, there's a great book on how the French, by, by Gabriel Heck, on how the French scientific industry establishment really pushed nuclear power in the post-war years, you know, more like the 60s, 70s onward, uh, but in order to establish france as a leader in international science again and i think even earlier than that the french were really concerned with rebuilding their scientific capabilities but at the same time doing it in a way that wouldn't leave france, france still sort of in the debt to germany in the same sense and so they were concerned with being on the good side of the americans and the brits but the americans the brits generally didn't trust the french they thought the french were conniving and secretive and weren't really going to cooperate Uh, So while the French were continually reaching out to the Americans and the British to get them to collaborate on some form of exploitation of German science and technology, the Americans and the British kind of kept them on the outside and at the same time, people within France were worried that if they took a bunch of Germans, brought them into France and dumped them into their own research establishments, one, that wouldn't really work because the French felt that if you took somebody out of their context, took a scientist and dumped them into a new country, they wouldn't be very productive there's there's a sense in the, the discussion about these french programs that a scientist is sort of part of a community a research establishment almost like in my, wine wine you know, making. there's the terroir the the ground around the wine is part of the taste and the flavor there's almost that sense when it comes to science in this french discussion and so you're worried that the germans aren't going to do very good work and you're also worried that if you send young french students to study with the germans to get their technology that way their science that way the the students will become too corrupted by the german way and won't really be french scientists anymore i end up going with a sort of middle ground where within the french occupation zone they set up franco-german research institutes where they would send more like they didn't have these exact systems but more like postdocs or early graduate students from France to study with the Germans rather than the equivalent of sort of undergrads or or younger people with the idea that they would be able to study what the Germans were doing, gain scientific skills, but also sort of act as scientist spies reporting back to the French about any German plans to develop secret weapons and overthrow the Allies, which was this, in retrospect paranoid, but really widespread fear throughout the period. Uh, And so the French being pushed on the outside made them move their own path and then their own idea about how you can take science really influenced them to collaborate with the Germans more than you would expect for right after a war when France had been sort of humiliated by the Germans and wanted nothing to do with the Germans in general. And yet were still willing in this way to work with them.
1: Did this have any sort of long term diplomatic impact? Um, between the French and the Germans, or even the French and, and the Anglo-Americans that you saw in your research,
2: yeah. I mean, obviously you can't prove causal connections like this, but I'll at least say, uh, in, in sort of uh, correlation wise, the French and the British, or sorry, the French and the Germans ended up collaborating very closely in science, building out of these Franco-German research institutes into a really close connection. such that they were even working on atomic research together within a decade after the war. You would never expect that if you look at a lot of the other discussion of how are we going to settle the post-war world. For the most part, the French were not willing to sacrifice anything if it meant France or Germany building back up into a strong power. And yet, at least in the realm of science and then increasingly from science into other fields, you start seeing the French and the Germans pulling together. And it's not that many years later, developing the core of what would eventually become the European Union. So I think this scientific story really did help knit together science. Science helped knit together the diplomacy of Western Europe in the same way that, and at the same time, the national security was doing the same thing as people were afraid of the Soviet Union.
0: Slash NBN fifty to get fifty percent
1: off. Now I think it's it's a good time to uh, transition into talking about the Soviet Union, and I'm I'm going to butcher the Russian if I try to say it. <laughs> so would I. <laughs> so would I. Okay. <laughs> I, took, I took a number of years of Russian, but I my pronunciation is not great. Yeah, and and yeah, it's a, it's very difficult. So um, let, let's just talk about the overall um, operation that the Russians. Uh, employed to appropriate German technology because it's it's obviously in your book makes this very clear very different than than the other three powers that we've discussed um, so so let's just start there with their overall um, with their overall way of doing things
2: yeah so the they are very different and at the same time maybe less different than the Allied powers would like to imagine that they were. Uh, Because the the Soviet exploitation of these German scientists came a lot later in a sense than the American and the British ones did, uh, and some degree the French. The Americans and the Brits really sent in investigators as the war was ending, as the armies were moving into the Western Front, as they were pushing the German armies back, there were what were called T-forces who were specialized units whose job it was to race at the front lines, sometimes ahead of the front lines, worried that the Germans were gonna burn down say, a university library or a big chemical plant or other things that the Americans and the British wanted. These T-forces were to to go ahead of things and secure them so the Germans couldn't sabotage them and that the American armies or the British armies didn't destroy them along their path. And so all of this American exploitation, British exploitation really took place right around the end of the war during this early occupation phase and then started getting phased out as it became clear that the germans were going to not just be um zones of occupation and there wasn't going to be a united germany in the near term there was going to be an east germany and a west germany the soviets came at it a little more slowly and their real big pro grab for german scientists was october 1946 so many years later and it was much more blatant in that one night, they essentially invited thousands of German scientists and technicians to, you know, come, come meet with us, in some cases have a party, and got everybody drunk, and then at the end of the night, the Soviet um, leader would sta- the military, military officer would stand up and say, by the way, uh, while you were here at this party, all of your apartment and your families are on trains heading into the Soviet Union, and you will be too. Uh, so head on out to these trains, and we'll see you in a couple of years and the these german scientists were shipped deep into the soviet union where they were set up in research establishments and occasionally given research tasks to pursue and some of these were involved in uh, the the soviet space program some of them were involved in the atomic um, atomic bomb program in the soviet union to some degree Uh, and some were involved in other fields but that that was this really blatant and to scientists in west germany a really scary illustration of Soviet power that was all across the headlines and the West really used this as a propaganda win. So there was this really blatant and and, and dramatic one day thing that contrasts with the sort of slower story of sending investigators from the West. At the same time, there are some similarities. And just uh, go into one quick thing here, which is that in the years after that, the Soviets did end up with something not that different than what I described as the French program, which is they set up these research institutes run by Soviets in East Germany that were attempting to do this sort of same technology transfer in the slow way by having Soviet people shadow East German technical specialists and bring their technology in that way.
1: Um, I was going to ask if the Soviets had any particular priorities in terms of the types of technology. I mean, you mentioned the atomic bomb and and so on, but uh, did they have priorities or were they were just trying to get everything that they could get?
2: Well, so the Soviets also, for anyone who's not aware, came from a just absolutely devastated position overall. The they, they, they Most of the Soviet Union had dealt with the Nazi invasion and then the Soviet counter push, both of which were to some degree scorched earth affairs and massive, massive loss of life, unbelievable loss of what small amount of industry there was before the war and even before the war, the Soviet Union was not particularly technologically advanced relative to some other countries and a lot of these industrial technologies. And so you're coming from a much, much more um, destroyed rudimentary position. And so a lot of the Soviet program was about getting really basic reparations like you might think of in basic reparations. They wanted anything they could grab, food, um, forced labor. Uh, any industrial equipment, entire factories, entire research institutes down to you know, the, literally the kitchen sink or you know the, the lab sink, unbolted, put into a train car and shipped in the Soviet Union. And so it's hard to differentiate this, these sort of scientific reparations from these huge, massive needs uh, pushed forward by the regular reparations programs. In terms of science specifically, they were interested in the atomic program, of course, once they saw what happened in Hiroshima and Nagasaki. But they also, Stalin also didn't really trust the Germans to provide reliable information about that. He really only trusted Soviet scientists and not really even them. And so there were a lot of things that they were targeting, especially military equipment. But they were also really looking for anything that could give them prestige, anything that could give them industrial might to challenge the capitalist West.
1: When you uh, with this incident of them kidnapping all the the German scientists, you, you mentioned that it was a propaganda victory for the West. But was there any real diplomatic uh, blowback or an attempt to get the Soviets to sort of send these guys back or, or anything like
2: that? Yeah, well, yeah, it, it was. There were it was in newspapers all over the world. You had certain sec, U.S. Secretary of State making a big deal about this, to which the Soviets responded, "We didn't." complain when you took, about the timing of when you took your scientists, why are you complaining about when we take ours? Uh, And and really, there, there was some propaganda element to it. There was also, this was also tied to a period when people were becoming more aware of what life was like in the Soviet Union in general. Early on, the Soviet Union was a very, very closed society. People weren't really allowed to leave. And so a lot of people in the West, including intellectual elites in science and other areas were oftentimes very willing to buy into the Soviet dream, equality, uh, anti-racism. A lot of these things that were being advertised as the Soviet way of life, the quick progress, were really captivating to people. And as far as they knew, they were actually being achieved to some degree. And that only slowly started getting chipped away over time. And only slowly did people become more aware of Stalin's purges and starvation and these sorts of things happening in the early Soviet or in you know, post-war Soviet Union. And so this is also a period when scientists are known, previously some scientists have been very willing to go to the Soviet Union right after the war because they thought this was one, intellectually a great thing, the, the whole idea of communism, and two, the Soviets seemed like they'd offer a good pay. So for a while there was a, a voluntary flow in the Soviet Union. This was really something that scared people who might have otherwise been willing to consider working with the Soviet Union, maybe immigrating there, and made them realize that maybe this was not a place to go. And this wasn't the first or the only indication, but it was a really public one. So long term, I think this also was just one more damaging thing when it came to Soviet ability to draw in intellectual um, intellectual minds, intellectual people, science, technology, in other ways.
1: Um, as the in a, in a general way, as the Cold War sort of set in, um, how did it if it did, uh, change any of the pro- approaches of the four countries? Did it make them more apt to try to get more science? Did they abandon it for other concerns? Like So how did the changing political situation, I guess, affect the policy of these countries in terms of science?
2: Yeah, part of that is tied to the overall diplomacy of the early Cold War. At first, nobody really knew what was going to become of Germany. It, everyone eventually had occupation zones. But Initially, I don't think really anyone envisioned an East Germany and a West Germany surviving in any kind of long term. It was just a temporary measure. And everyone sort of imagined there'd be another Germany. And there was this big question of what was Germany going to look like. There was, you know, some people argued we should pound it into the ground so it's an agricultural society, no more industry whatsoever. If you were arguing that path, then maybe you wanted to do your exploitation fairly quickly. Others argued we should build back up Germany as... You know, in the west as a capitalist safeguard against the east from the soviet union maybe as east germany become a vanguard to keep away the, the capitalist incursion on on them if you're looking at it in that way if you're actually envisioning staying there long term or having long-term ties with germany you can look at these longer term programs so it has the soviets once east germany was going to become a long-term thing started setting up these longer term mechanisms of using German technology and innovation and German minds through these long-term research institutes. In the West, it's more like, as I said, the Americans figuring out at a business level, who can I work with in capitalist West Germany who can produce our goods and we can learn from them through these sort of more traditional long-term business alliances. So at the broad scale, there's a shift in that way. There's also a worry increasingly in the West about this propaganda side of things We should hurry up and finish up our exploitation and get out because this is going to look more and more like what the Soviets are accusing us of, which is exploitation and uh, taking over and taking the the goods from Germany. It's going to look like something we don't want to look like. And so hurry up, get out as fast as you can. And so that was really a lot of the pressure on finishing up these programs from the Americans and the Brits was let's get Germany back on its feet, which means stop stealing their ideas, as they felt. And also... Uh, let's not look bad in front of the Soviets.
1: Um, let's talk about some of your later chapters now, which are a little bit more um, narrow in, in their focus. Mm-hmm. Um, I was very fascinated by your sort of practical elements chapter, where you talk about the, the moving around of all of this information and material and, and how like this was done. Can um, you just give us a little uh, explanation of this? Um, and, and maybe connect it to the larger the larger
2: story that you're telling. And that, that was a chapter I had no intention or idea about writing when I started this project. It was something that just came out purely in the research, which is that people went in thinking really across these nations, uh, primarily in the West, that they, they were really going to be able to capture everything in Germany in written format. And part of the idea behind that is the same kind of technological utopianism we see today sometimes around information technology that you know in five years computers will be able to teach anything to anyone and all this information will be free and all this information will be infinitely accessible through the internet and you'll be able to teach yourself anything. The schools will be obsolete. And we see this sort of overexcited language more, you know, more 15 years ago than today. But that kind of enthusiasm was happening at the time around a technology that today seems kind of old-fashioned, which is microfilm. Anyone who's worked with microfilm knows it's kind of a pain in the butt to work with. But at the time, it was a massively important technology because suddenly you could capture an entire library's worth of books in microfilms that fit within you know, two or three suitcases. That kind of potential was really, really gripping. And so leading into the war, there had been decades of people imagining that we would have you know a bibliography or an, in, an index the bibliography the index that has all of human knowledge captured in it and that sort of enthusiasm spread through the library community around the world and there, were a, there was a whole movement called the documentarian movement who were trying to do that but they were running up against the problem that science was exponentially growing and it had been exponentially growing for a long time and it was getting less and less possible for even a specialist in, let's say you know particle physics to keep up with all the developments in particle physics, much less all the developments in physics, much less all the developments in science. And so you start having this conflict between exponential increase in information and the desire to master all information through technology and bibliography and organization really drove a lot of why people thought they were going to be able to take everything out of Germany and also the problems they ran up against over and over again. It turns out, even if if you have the best technology in the world and you're able to make all the photocopies you want, put all the information you want on Wikipedia, that's not the same thing as people actually digesting and reading and understanding and learning that information and it actually being useful to anybody. And that's really what's at the heart of this thing the British were talking about of not being able to capture the know-how element, no matter how well they were able to write these reports, no matter how many documents they're able to capture. And so people on the ground kept running up against this this massive, massive amount of information that yes, they could in theory capture in microfilm, but then what? Then you can ship it back to your home country. You can make copies of the microfilm. That's easy enough, though not free, as people might want to imagine that it would be. But then, then what? A, a huge amount of this microfilm ended up in untranslated, still in German, probably never even examined in the first place, sitting in archives where it sort of just might still be today to some degree especially in America, but but in general, a huge amount of information was gathered, but gathering information is not the same thing as understanding or knowing or using information. And that's where all this enthusiasm around microfilm, to some degree, probably undermined what people could have gotten out of these exploitation programs. If they'd gone in from the start realizing, we're not gonna be able to capture it fully in this way, let's really focus on the key things that we need and sending the people over who need to know this information and can teach it personally back home.
1: Yeah, I, I think I, I was struck by this chapter. Just the just one, as you mentioned, the microfilm sort of enthusiasm. Um, everybody who works with microfilm, as you said, now knows that it's it's hor- it can be horrible to work with. Um, did you look at into at all? Um, just maybe translation efforts or some other shortcomings that. You mentioned that, you know, if they had the know-how, you brought the people over. But did you look into any of those other issues, I guess, translation primarily?
2: Yeah, there's, there's, there's a fun story here that you know, Michael Gordon is really the historian, is the ex- key expert at this. But uh, leading into the war, especially leading in the First World War, but to some degree by the Second World War too, German science, I said, was really, really highly esteemed throughout the world. Uh, Everyone thought of it as the best. The best research was going on to a large degree in these German journals. And people who wanted to become a scientist, whether or not they went to study in Germany, as an awful lot of the top researchers did, would at least need to know German. Being bilingual or more than bilingual and knowing German was almost a requirement of being a high level scientist leading into the Second World War. After the war, as people really start trying to grapple with these documents specifically, but also other German documents, you start seeing people trying to put, turn this other new invention, the computer, or early versions of the computer, into a mechanical translation type system, finding that doesn't really work very well with the technology they had in the 40s and 50s, and then working on other ways of translating German science into English or into other languages, primarily English though. And suddenly, once you have all of German science being summarized, at least in the case of the German exploitation programs, but German science in journals also being translated into English, suddenly if you're a French scientist, you don't necessarily need to know German, you need to know English because you need to know what's going on in the English speaking world. And if you also now have English translations of what's going on in the German speaking world, you don't necessarily need to know the German natively too. It's handy, but it's not as crucial. And the same thing's true if you're a Chinese scientist or you know Japanese scientist or a scientist from other countries. More and more of the world started focusing around the English language as the language of science, in part because through these post-war, early post-war efforts, everything was getting translated, at least everything that the American scientists thought was important enough to be translated, was being translated into English. And this was really what started, started Merging the international mix of languages of science, which used to be really heavily divided among different languages, into this, what we see today, which is that English as the language of science, that anyone who is a scientist around the world will benefit extraordinarily from knowing.
1: Um, I, I think I stole a little bit of the thunder from the next question because <laughs> I, I have a feeling that this is going to be part of the answer. Um, let's talk about the, the sort of the last uh, chapter. What are the major legacies? of these programs?
2: Yeah, I mean, So that so that, that's one of them, but I, I think maybe not the most important. I, I think at the holistic level, the, thing, the other thing I didn't come into this book th- planning to write about, but kept seeing again and again and again, is what I've described as this know-how factor. And that wasn't just a British story. That was something the Americans were describing, it's something the British were describing. I said it's something the French were sort of planning around to start with. And in the post-war years, That actually became a really big deal in the world of business and contract law that then developed into what today we call trade secrets, which is this intellectual property right that's sort of like related to patents, but patents are something that you've written down on paper and you have a monopoly to this knowledge and someone else figuring out how to use the technology, they're not allowed to as long as you have a patent on it. Trade secrets on the other hand today are, I know how to do this thing, I'm gonna keep it secret. You know, Maybe I know how to mix these dyes together to get this new color. Maybe I could, maybe I couldn't get a patent on it. But if I do put a patent on it, that patent's gonna expire someday and other people are gonna be able to do that. And I've written down how to do it. If I don't tell anybody, I can keep it a trade secret forever within some limits. And that, that's a big part of law today. And so you see all these tech companies worried about their key engineer going from Uber to some automatic or automated car Um, company or something like that, the worry about technology moving from place to place through people, that to some degree is a legacy of this worry about know-how, which then ended up being in the early post-war years, the growth of what were called know-how contracts that got attached to technology sharing agreements in general. If a company in Germany and a company in the United States wanted to collaborate, before the war, they might've just said, we're going to buy you out. We're going to send our people over. They're going to manufacture it in your country. Now, after the war, you start seeing people having know-how contracts where I'm going to send some a few of my people over to train yours. And you're going to send a few of your people over to my company and they're going to shadow our guys. And we're going to share our technology through these in-person contacts in a way that hadn't really been done before. Just Maybe you have a patent sharing agreement, too. Maybe you don't even bother because patents were not seen as, impo- as important as this know-how component that really wasn't talked about until the 50s in this way and really became a big part of international business. I think that's, again, you can never tell a, a story and say this is, you know, cause A led this effect B when it comes to these big overarching things. But I think there's a strong case that these programs that really came to focus on the know-how component really changed the way that businesses tried to share technology in the post-war years. And tied to that, the diplomatic world of technol- technical assistance as we're going to go teach these other countries how to develop crops better or to develop their industries so they can become a stronger capitalist ally or socialist ally. Uh, that those technical assistance programs that were a huge part of the Cold War and developing these Cold War alliances were also very heavily influenced by the idea that we can't just send you a bunch of blueprints and have you develop this. We really need to send our people in as what we're sometimes called technical missionaries to convert you to our technology and our way of organizing the business world around the technology. I think those are both huge legacies. They weren't solely caused by these, but I think they were a big influence on changing the way that technology transfer was done and used by countries in the post-war years. Yeah. I think this is one of the things I really liked about
1: this book is that, and you, you've mentioned a couple times now, cause a doesn't always result in effect. Um, but it you make you demonstrate really well that how the this these programs these exploitation programs they impacted a lot of different areas of diplomacy and military and technology growth throughout Europe and the world um, for decades after um, and you know this is something that may not have been talked about a lot in some of these other books about these kinds of programs uh, that are much more interested in the story. Um, and not necessarily in the long-term impacts of these programs. And I, I think that's one of the things about your book that's really interesting, um, something to think about, <laughs> you know. Um, so as a way to close discussion of your book, I always, I always like to ask the author to tell us one or two things that they would like listeners of the podcast and hopefully readers of the book to take with them, to keep with them, to sort of remember down the road, um, just, just one or two key things.
2: Sure. I think the first thing on sort of the really key topic of taking Nazi technology per se would be that these are much bigger than just Project Paperclip. Paperclips, important enough, it's an interesting story, but people tell it as Americans did this thing and that was sort of it. It was much broader within America and it was an international story. It wasn't even confined to these four countries we've talked about today. Other countries were also involved and there just really haven't been as many histories done about it. Canada, for example, really tried to bring in German scientists. So did a number of other countries, both working with or trying to circumvent the Allies. this, This was an international attempt of technology transfer on a scale really never seen before. And the broader lesson I'd like people to take away is this idea that technology transfer isn't as easy as writing something down. And one big application for that is take some skepticism when you hear that some big cyber hack has led to the release of 64 you know, terabytes, petabytes, whatever of information, and that therefore the Chinese are able to do all of our military technologies as well as we can. Data is useful; information useful in the written format. And as we get better and better sorts of technology today, like you know YouTube, as I said, does a better job of conveying this than the written format. But have some skepticism when you hear. People stole these records, therefore, they stole this technology. It's not the same thing. The written format, the data, there's a big step between having something written down and actually having someone show you how to do a thing. And having someone show you how to do a thing is generally where the technology lives in a meaningful sense.
1: So... um... I know that you said in your your introduction that uh, you're not working in academia; you're working outside academia. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, I oh, but I always ask at the end: um, Are you working on something else now? Um, any other scholarly projects, or personal projects, or business projects
2: um, on the horizon for you? Yeah, it's not going as fast as it might if I were still in academia. But I, I'm slowly chipping away at a book on the history of industrial espionage in the United States, and that. Tied, tied to that next book, if I ever get to a line, lineup, that would be a history of trade secrets in general. So these are obviously tied to, to what I was saying, but that's espionage is a whole whole fun other story. Well, those
1: sound like fascinating projects. I know that you said they will be a while down the road, but uh, <laughs> if they're, as soon as they're done and they're in book form, um, we would love to have you back to talk about them. That'd be great. Um, I, I want to thank Doug uh, again today for being on the show. Um, I, I really like this book. Um, and as many of the longtime listeners know, I, I've had Brian Krim on and and others that have talked about these topics. Uh, so it's a topic of personal interest of mine. Um, I want to give everybody the name of the book again before we uh, finish. It's called <clears throat> Taking Nazi Technology, Allied Exploitation of German Science After the Second World War. And again, it's by Dr. Douglas O'Regan. Um, and I want to... Okay, Before I finish, thank everybody for listening today, and again, thank Doug for being on the show, and we will see you all next time. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere.
0: Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen The Bride and Groom?